You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was preached on the third Sunday of Epiphany, January 26th, 2020. A reading from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You examine my path and my places of rest and are acquainted with all my ways. Indeed, there is not a word on my tongue, but you, O Lord, know it altogether. You have enclosed me behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. So excellent, I cannot attain to it. Where shall I go then from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, Then shall my night be turned to day. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as clear as the day. The darkness and the light to you are both alike. For you yourself made my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My bones were not hidden from you, when I was made in secret and fashioned in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my substance while I was yet unformed, and in your book were all my members written, which day by day were fashioned when as yet there were none of them. How dear to me are your thoughts, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I were to count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I wake up, I am present with you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It is widely assumed, or should be widely assumed, that whatever it is that you do on the internet is being tracked. In fact, beyond whatever you do on the internet, every purchase you make Every uh, place you go, there are lots of reasons to believe, especially if you carry a smartphone in your pocket, that you are being tracked, that your data is being mined, that, uh, that companies know things about you that maybe even your mother doesn't know. But uh, you will have proof of this uh, if you've ever gone searching for something on the internet. Say you do an Amazon search and you're looking for new socks. And then all of a sudden you go over to Google and you're Googling for something completely different. And all of a sudden in the sidebar you see advertisements for new socks popping up right next to it. Has that ever happened to you? It certainly happened to me. Companies can track your purchases. They can track your location with your smartphone. They can track your digital history if you let them. And some will even track you if you don't let them, though they won't admit to it. Everything we do online, and some things we do even offline, is being tracked. And if that feels creepy to you, 
take comfort in the fact that there is one place that these companies cannot go, and that's into your thoughts. These companies, as much as they can track what you search for, as much as they can track your location and all these other things, there's no way for them to track what goes on in your head. Right between your ears is a safe location. Not even the NSA knows how to crack that safe. On the other hand, there is someone who can track your thoughts. And no, it's not Bill Gates. And no, it's not Mark Zuckerberg. It's God. God can track even the uttermost thoughts of your hearts. Even the deepest, most private things that you hold to yourself. Everything between your two ears. God knows it. He hears it. When we read in the Psalms today, we hear this. O Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. God hears us. God hears even our thoughts. And he can track your location just like your phone. If you look in the next verse, it says, You examine my path and my places of rest and are acquainted with all my ways. God knows the most intimate details of our lives. He knows the places where we go, both the good places we go and the the places maybe we shouldn't have gone. He knows the places that we flee to for rest. He knows when we flee to those places for rest too often. He knows when we're too busy. He knows when we're not busy enough. He knows when we're doing nothing. God knows it. And in verse 3 it says, Indeed, there is not a word on my tongue, but you, O Lord, know it altogether. Our private conversations, even the, the conversations we have with ourselves, by ourselves as you're making breakfast, God knows it. God knows what's going on in your life. He knows everything about you, more than you know about yourself. King David is the author of this psalm. And King David was well acquainted with the fact that God knows everything. King David uh, was the king, of course. And like many kings and many rulers, he had some secrets. And maybe the biggest secret of all, though it couldn't have been that secret because he involved some of his courtiers in the, the process of the secret, but perhaps his biggest secret of all was the affair that he had with Bathsheba. David... In the spring, when kings go off to war, didn't go off to war. He sent his armies off to war, but he stayed home by himself. Maybe even that is an indication that he was taking rest when he should have been busy. And idleness, as we all know, can lead to things that are not good. And in this case, David's idleness did lead to things that are not good. He was up on his roof, looking over his city, and he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. Why she was bathing on the roof? I don't know. But he sees her, and he calls to his his courtiers, his servants, and he says, that woman, bring her here. And he sleeps with her. And she gets pregnant. And David has an oh-no moment. What's going to happen? I know what I'll do. I'll bring Uriah, her husband, and he can come, and I'll have him, he's supposed to be off at war, but I'll have him come home, and surely he will spend some time with his wife, and surely we can call this child his. 
But Uriah, being an upright man, decides not even to go home. He comes back to Jerusalem being obedient, but he doesn't go home. He sleeps outside. He says, why should I sleep under my own roof and have comfort when all my, father, my fellow brothers are out there on the battlefield? And so he comes back to Jerusalem, but doesn't go home and goes back to the battlefield. David still has an oh-no moment. He's still trying to cover it up. And so he sends Uriah, by direction of the commanders of the army, out to the very front lines. And Uriah is killed in battle. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. Safe. Right? Covered up. Nobody's going to know. That's what he thought. Except God knows. Right? And so God sends word to David through his prophet, Nathan, who is a, a good friend of David's, a trusted companion, a trusted prophet of the Lord. Nathan comes and he tells David a little story about a man who stole someone else's sheep. And this was a beloved sheep. It was a sheep that actually lived in the man's own house. He loved it like he loved a child. And another man stole this sheep. And David said, surely this man should die. And Nathan says, you are the man. He was tricked. He was caught. And here's the rest of what Nathan says. He says, you are the man. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Even if no one else knew it, in this moment, it's revealed to David that God knew it. God saw the secret intentions of his heart. God saw the secret actions of his bedroom. And David repents. He turns back to the Lord, and the Lord forgives him. We see him repent here in 2 Samuel. We see him also repent in Psalm 51, which is a beautiful psalm of repentance, specifically written in this moment of repentance for David as he repents of, of this sin with Bathsheba. We all have things in our lives that we're ashamed of things that we hope no one will ever know about us. Maybe it's something from your past, or maybe it's something you're struggling with right now. Either way, even if nobody knows, God knows. God sees the most secret places of our lives. He sees the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So what do we do knowing that God knows? Well, we could do what a lot of people do. We could run and hide. And there would be a long legacy of people doing just that. It goes all the way back to our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. We're all related, of course. Our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, who, when he committed sin against the Lord, hid and tried to cover himself up. And so the Lord goes looking for him and, and searching for him, and he says, Adam, where are you? As if the Lord didn't already know the answer to that question. And Adam says, I'm hiding. I'm scared. So we could do what Adam did. We could do uh, what David did, trying to cover it up. We could do what Jonah did, running in the opposite direction of Nineveh, running away from the call of God. We could run away and hide like all these people. How would we do that? What would that look like today? Well, we might stop coming to church because, after all, church is God's house. So maybe if we don't go to God's house, he won't see us anymore. Or we might avoid our Christian friends because 
After all, they might tattle on us and tell God what's going on in our lives. And so if we avoid our Christian friends and the church, maybe God won't know. Maybe he won't see what's going on in our lives. The thing is, running away from God is like running away from the sun or the moon. Wherever you go, there it is. Have you ever done that at night? I used to do that when I was a a little boy. I would look out the window as we were driving at night, going from one place to another, and stare at the moon and just wonder at how all the trees passed by me, but the moon was right there. It didn't move at all. God is always right there. He's a fixture in our lives, whether we acknowledge his presence or not. He's always right there, always seeing us, always hearing us, always knowing us. There's nowhere that we can go that we can run away from God. When we continue back in our psalm, this is in your bulletin so you can follow along or you can look it up in your Bible. But it says in verse 7, or verse 6, Where shall I go then from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. He's saying there's nowhere I can go that I can escape God's presence. There's no way, possibly, that I can run away from God. No way that I can go someplace where he can't see me or hear me. Nowhere I can go where he can't reach me. Running away from God just doesn't work. He's always going to follow you. He's always going to catch up with you. In fact, he's already caught up with you. He's he's tapping you on his shoulder, saying, listen, I'm right here. But perhaps the most dangerous form of running away is to run deeper into sin. You might think of this as embracing darkness. And this, too, is a common response. We've sinned, we feel guilty about it, and so instead of turning to God for forgiveness and comfort, we run in the opposite direction into our sin and dig ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into the hole of sin, into the darkness of sin. We think maybe God's already mad at me, so I'll just keep going. I'll just keep running away. I'll keep digging myself deeper and deeper into this darkness. But God will come to us even in our darkest places and our darkest moments. God will chase us into the very darkest places, places where we wouldn't expect him even to be or go. Verse 11, even the darkness is not dark to you. Verse 10, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, then shall my night be turned to day. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as clear as the day. The darkness and the light to you are both alike. God's got a very powerful flashlight, you know. A very powerful flashlight. And when he turns it on, the darkness scatters. So even in the deepest, darkest places of our sin, even there, God can see us. God can find us. In the Gospel of Matthew today, and this is the part we don't usually think about in this passage. Normally we think about uh, 
the calling of these disciples and I will make you fishers of men, which is a really cool literary allusion. And they were fishermen and now they're going to fish for men. But perhaps you missed the little bit of prophecy that told about why Jesus moved from Nazareth to Galilee. It says that Isaiah the prophet said, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is people who have tried to flee to the darkness. People who have tried to cover their sin with more sin, burying themselves deeper and deeper into places where they hope God can't find them. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. When I was in Israel a few years back, uh, just before I, I came to be rector here at Good Samaritan, I was in the region of Samaria, um, and I got to visit a church Uh, that's built over Jacob's well. There's really no other place that could have been Jacob's well. Uh, So it has to be the spot. It has to be the the same well that that Jesus asked for a drink from the woman at the well. And so I went into this church, and you have to go down some stairs uh, below the church into this tiny little room. And it's an Orthodox church, so there's icons all over the walls in this tiny little room. But it's, you know, it's probably about the size from from that side of the altar rail over to here, like tiny little room. And you can dip the bucket down into the well and draw some water up and, and dip the dipper in and, and take a drink from this well. But I decided to look down into the well and I had a flashlight with me. So I shined my flashlight down into the well and I could just barely see the water way down, way, way, way down under the earth. And imagine if you've put yourself in the darkness, way down, deep, deep, deep into that deep, dark well. And then imagine God's searchlight coming on and flooding the darkness. That's what God does when we flee to the darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Darkness is hopeless. When we get into that dark place, there's no way we can get ourselves back out. There's no way we can turn around. There's no way we can climb up, climb up the walls of that well. It's too dark. It's too deep. But when we dwell in darkness, God will shine his light on us. Even there. And you can see this clearly in the way that Jesus spent his time. Often with tax collectors and sinners. People nobody else wanted to spend time with. Their lives were too messy. They were too sinful. We might get tainted by that. Jesus wasn't worried about that. He went right to them. If Jesus were to come today, where do you think he would hang out? Think about it. I'm sure he'd spend some time here with us at church. But then he'd leave church and he'd probably go to a bar. Not to get drunk, but to hang out with people who need to to hear about his love. People dwelling in great darkness who need to have the light of Christ shine upon them. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Or perhaps you remember the words we were reading during Christmas season. 
from the Gospel of John. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So wherever we go, however far you run, however dark it gets, God will still be there, and he still sees you. And all this talk of scrutiny can make us feel just a little bit uneasy and uncomfortable, huh? Maybe you're squirming your seat a little bit right now. I was squirming a little bit as I was writing this sermon. God sees you. God sees everything, the good and the bad. We're generally much happier to examine others than we are to examine ourselves or to be examined, right? And the nature of the scrutiny makes a difference. So, for instance, when I go to the doctor, my doctor sometimes wants to see parts of my body that I would not normally show to anybody else. I don't feel comfortable being examined by the doctor. And yet, I know that the reason the doctor needs to see those parts of my body is to make sure that I either prevent illness or get healed from illness that I already have. The doctor needs to see me. All of me. And that's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's okay because the doctor needs to see it for good reasons. Right? And when God scrutinizes our thoughts and actions, it's always with a scrutiny of love. And so when we squirm and are getting uncomfortable about knowing all the things that God sees us, it's because we've put wrong thoughts in our head about who God is. That God is out to get us. That God is out to condemn us. And this is not to negate the judgment of God. There is a judgment of God. God has a sense of justice that is deep. But God also has a deep sense of mercy. And the point of the justice is to point us to the mercy. The point of the scrutiny is to welcome us back home into his love. And so when we feel God's judgment upon us, it's not a condemning judgment. It's a loving judgment. A caring judgment. A judgment that's designed to bring us to our knees and put our hope back in God and off of us. We can't hope in ourselves because we're hopeless. But God can take care of it all. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that we might be forgiven and freed. Jesus goes into the darkness to draw us back out of it because he loves us. Going back to Psalm 139, we have a beautiful reminder, even in the midst of this scrutiny, of the reason behind it. For you yourself made my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and fashioned in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my substance while I was yet unformed. And in your book were all of my members written. Can you just imagine God having a little book where he was writing out the blueprint for your life? 
the blueprint for your body, every piece of you, every cell of your body. God knew it all. He had a plan for it. He made it in your mother's womb. He recorded every step of that. Why? Because he loves you. And this is proof. We don't take that kind of care with things that we don't care about. But God sees everything. He knows everything because he loves you and he cares so deeply for you. God is not searching us out to criticize us or punish us. He just wants us to come home and be all that he's created us to be. He wants us to be lovingly restored. Like a painting that's been tarnished over time and is lovingly, bit by bit, scraping away the dirt and bringing out the full color of what it was intended to be. Mending all the parts that have been broken. And so in the end, we would all do well to welcome the scrutiny of God. To look forward to that light shining down on us in the deep darkness of the well. So hear these last words of the psalm. And these aren't in your, your bulletins. These are at the, the very end. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of life everlasting. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You know my innermost thoughts. You know the ways where I have pleased you, and you know the ways where I have dug myself into darkness. I thank you for your light, Lord. I thank you that you come after me each and every time. I thank you for what Jesus did for me on the cross. And so we ask, Lord, draw us back to you again. Remind us of your love for us. And help us to come home when we stray away. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.